It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as I discuss the 1964 film Failsafe. Here we are again, uh, somewhat adding a bit of a like a spin-off to our Kubrick series by covering Failsafe, 1964. Came out the same year as Doctor Strangelove, and I'm sure I've, you having watched it now, you can see the uh, you can see why Kubrick was maybe worried about this one coming out so close to his film. Absolutely, lots of similarities in plot and an overall kind of apocalyptic tone, but yeah, very different in terms of content. And had you uh, had you heard of this one much before come to this podcast? Absolutely not at all. No, not at all. Yeah, I don't know when I heard about this one, but it's always been on my list of things to see. But um, the only reason I I really brought it out this time is one because we're covering Doctor Strangelove soon, and two because it showed up on TCM uh, like maybe like two weeks ago. Oh, and so I DVR'd it. Well, that explains it. Yeah, good good timing. It'll probably be a little while before we finally get to Doctor Strangelove because I got to rope in Isaac. But, but did you have any initial thoughts for for this one? Well, it feels like a movie that should be in that book, a thousand and one movies you should see before you die. I just went to go look, and I don't believe it is in the book. But having seen about ten movies off that, I mean, ten random movies off out of that book, just feels like it would be in in there. Um, because that book has, a, while it does have some movies that everyone's heard of, it'll have these other ones that no one's ever heard of. And you watch it and you go, oh yeah, hmm, that's a thing. And so that's my <laughs> initial reaction is I've never heard of this movie. Um, but yet it has a notable director, has a notable cast, all kinds of familiar faces that you'd recognize if you watch classic film. Um, or television, and and it's like, oh, it, it it feels like something that was unearthed, you know, like that was lost and, and found 40 years later. Um, <laughs> but I will say it went in some direction I wasn't expecting because I didn't really know. And you had mentioned that this was in the realm of Dr. Strangelove before I watched it. But I didn't know it was going to be so similar to Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I didn't like that in, retros- in retrospect, how similar it was. Mm. But initially, and I mean like, I don't know, approximately the first 20 minutes of the movie, 
That's different. I mean, if I didn't realize it was going to be Strange Love Redux. Um, and I was actually more into it. Um, but eventually, then I get to see what direction it's going and how it plays out. And then I see, okay, so this is extremely Strange Love. And that kind of hurts the movie, at least for me. And it's not just because of the, the difference in tone. Because obviously Strange Love has a st- satirical, tongue-in-cheek, um, like not-of-this-world type sense about it. Whereas this is a straight-up drama. It's not because of that contrast that hurt me mm-hmm. with this movie. It's because the the plot and subject matter was so similar it just highlighted the direction and cinematography of the Kubrick film and made this look like a lesser facsimile. Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm. If that makes sense. And I'm saying it, basically I'm saying it has more to do with the production itself rather than the tone and direction of these two different movies that hurt this one when put up aside um, strange love because Strange Love, you can turn the sound off for both movies, and Strange Love looks like a motion picture. This <laughs> looks like a television movie or an episode of an anthology series, production values wise, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I was gonna say it feels like a like a stage drama just put put on film. Yes, but. That I mean the script itself is very much like a stage drama, and it's interesting because a movie this reminded me of before I realized I had other connections. A movie that hmm. went through my mind besides Doctor Strange Love was this feels very Twelve Angry Men to me, the original Twelve Angry Men. Um, yeah, it wasn't until so. after I finished the movie that I realized it was the same director, and I kind of thought. Henry Fonda was in 12 Angry Men, but it's been so long since I've seen it, like a really long time. Uh, like, I haven't seen it, the original, literally since the 90s, I think. Um, that's how long ago. I've, and yet, I didn't realize, oh yeah, it actually shares a lot of DNA with this movie. Um, yeah, and then I just couldn't get over... I couldn't stop in my mind comparing the war room I'll call it in this movie with the kind of V shaped table mm-hmm. and compared to the war room in Kubrick. And um, so there was that comparison in my mind. And also I was thinking, how do I think about seeing this movie? Even take Dr. Strangelove off the table. But in 64, if I try to pretend like I was around at that time, going to the movies, there would have already been, um, what three bond films under our belt at that point and to be used to seeing that technicolor and then that the crazy design that we get especially by the third um Mm -hmm. bond film of like the the layers and all that kind of stuff and and there's probably some term for that style that architecture style that's prevalent in the bond movies of the 60s um and you get some of it in the kubrick in, in strange love but for the listener who has no idea what I'm talking about, if you watch The Incredibles, it <laughs> it mimics that architecture that I'm talking about, that 60s, the way the buildings look. 
and and the spaces and so as i'm watching this movie i'm putting myself in the mind of if i existed in 1964 and i wouldn't know what to think of this after seeing three bond films already and then this would feel like such a weird step backwards in a weird kind of way so that was just all this stuff was distracting to me while watching this movie yeah and this is yeah i was gonna say one of the uh kind of cultural cultural artifacts that we uh miss nowadays is at least back then you would kind of be signaled okay it's black and white this is going to be more of a drama because back then they would like save the big color kind of motion pictures for the uh more of their version of the blockbuster whatever whatever you can call that something that's a little bit more uh poppy yes so they'd be more more aware that you're settling in for a more dramatic film with the black and white true that was another kind of coup that kubrick pulled out with dr strangelove it was kind of a, a curious choice for him to go that way with that movie. I agree. Which I think was part of the, the joke that he was making. I agree with all that. But somehow that magic, that approach, it worked with Psycho. Mm-hmm. Because again, a lot of modern audiences don't realize that Psycho was designed as a throwback even at the time it came out. But maybe because that is more of a slasher suspense movie, it works better and doesn't take me out of it and just adds to it. Now, with this movie, Mm -hmm. the black and white certainly adds to the tone and demeanor as being more serious. It's a more straight-up drama, and that works. And the lighting is all fantastic, as is often the case in a lot of black and white movies. The lighting is amazing. It's just some of the sets, I think, lack in... uh, and it's I can only think it's budgetary reasons they they lack an aesthetic, yeah, yeah, the sets especially feel like something that you'd see on the on the stage, like they just don't feel particularly cinematic, yeah, and it it could be some of it, especially later on, it could be that they're just kind of like in bunkers or places like that where they wouldn't put a lot of work into the into the aesthetic in like a real place but but it definitely didn't feel anywhere near as. Yeah, like you watch Doctor Strangelove and the sets just immediately catch your eye. Yes. This movie, it's much more about the performances and kind of the intensity of the script that's meant to uh, carry you along. Oh, but just for my initial thoughts, I wanted to say. Well, real quick, I was about to, I was about to give a compliment to something that I did think looked was done well enough for the time, and that was the big view screen. However, the, the view screen threw me at first because. The first time we see it, and it's like zoomed in, it's zoomed in on what is, what what part of Canada is that? Like, what's the state on the East Coast, the big one? Oh, I'm not sure which, uh, maybe I'll go to that scene. East Coast of Canada. Like uh, Ontario, or? Because I guess, because New, Newfoundland is small, right? Yeah, quite small. So it's probably Ontario. So at one point when we really pay attention to the map, it kind of focuses in, when he's explaining it, to the, um, I don't know what the guy is. In British terms, he'd be like a minister who's checking in or something. I don't know what, the, what you would call the American version. Um, but, this, hmm. but there's this bureaucrat or someone who is um, just kind of being shown how the operation works over in Omaha. And uh, they're explaining the view screen. And at one point, it zoomed in on, I guess, the Ontario region of, of, of Canada. And then the, the camera, it was like on tight zoom, and then it was zooming out. And because of the colors they chose for the land versus the sea, 
um, and because it's in black and white, my brain transposed the colors. So I was looking at the continents, and I was like, what the? F- I don't understand what continents I'm looking at. <laughs> and so for a second, I almost thought this was like an episode of Twilight Zone, and like this was like not Earth. Like this was like alternate Earth or something. Because I was like, I don't recognize any of these continents on the screen. But then my brain did that like switcheroo, like when you see an optical illusion. And I realized <laughs> that the ocean was the land and the land was the ocean. And then I realized it was Earth. So that was just a weird moment I had um, staring at the screen. Yeah, and I, I got to the screen. It looks like that's Quebec that they're coming up on. But no, oh, but just for my initial thoughts, um, I think I mentioned several times during our Kubrick series, but maybe other times in the podcast. But Dr. Strangelove is my favorite film. And I'd always meant to watch this, but coming to it, I wasn't really bringing the the baggage of Dr. Strangelove. Like, I always knew this was meant to be a more serious take. And so I just, when I came to it, I was more thinking of it as a Sidney Lumet film. And in that regard, I feel like it absolutely lived up to everything I could have expected from his work. Definitely a lot of influence from 12 Angry Men. And it was also making me think a little bit of like, uh, a little bit of like Serpico. For, I can't even I can't even say why necessarily, but I was definitely thinking of Serpico in terms of the kind of one-sided nature of the movie. Okay. Like it it definitely like there's the there is the more hawkish right wing kind of side, but they're painted pretty like there's like they're they're drawn pretty pretty villainously throughout. It's not like it's super uh, nuanced in terms of yeah having those guys in the room being helpful in any way they're they're kind of just a hindrance the whole way through those more hawkish uh people but i think just the kind of bleak tone and maybe just the the current time that we're living in right now with our semi uh, restarting of the cold war i think this really hit a good spot for me and i, I really enjoyed it but i did want to jump into uh like just maybe the biggest highlight of the movie, which is just the great performances throughout. Um, I think Henry Fonda, for one, gives a, a super standout role. Uh, I'm not super familiar with his work. I've seen him in yeah, like a couple of random things, like way late in his career, but I haven't seen a ton of stuff from his from his heyday. So yeah, I've seen practically nothing of him, to be honest. Yeah, he showed up in one of the disaster movies that I watched recently. I think it was The Swarm. I think. <laughs> One of the more bad ones, and I was like, "Oh, okay," but, but you know, I thought he was just fantastic in this. Any standouts for uh, for you among the cast? Um, I, they were all fantastic. I agree with Henry Fonda. I was enamored by a younger Larry Hagman playing the interpreter. Um, that was cool. Oh yeah. Um, mm. I'd never seen him that young before. Obviously, the youngest I've seen him is in Bewitched. And it was interesting that he was playing... Well, he was a, a translator, but he was a military man. His character was prior. Um, I mean, that was part of his backstory. It was interesting since he was in the Air Force. In uh, Oh, wait. I said Bewitched. Wait. He was in uh, I Dream of Genie. Um, and, of course, he was in the Air Force in that show. And so Larry Hagman, that was like just an added bonus. I did not expect that. Um, <laughs> Walter Matthau was great except i really liked him at the beginning Mm. but then he his character took a turn at some point in the movie 
and he turned into like this weird cartoonish evil person. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really like that. I didn't really see that coming. Um, I don't know. Kind of took me by surprise. Yeah. And I get what they were, were doing there. Like I, like I, I thought it made sense to some degree, but yeah, he was playing it way too, way too arch. It just came off a little bit like, okay, I, I don't really want to see on the screen anymore. Like you're kind of distracting. Like he, his character starts off as this interesting, insightful, intellectual type, and it's weird to show him after that initial social party or whatever it is. Yeah, it's weird that they take the time to focus on this beautiful woman being enamored by him. It's interesting that they took five minutes to focus on that um, because I, is there like. Are they trying to say something else about that? Um, I wonder. Um, but they're showing that people definitely flock to this guy because they think he's really smart in his area of expertise. And he comes across as a very pragmatic person. But he becomes like the human embodiment of Skynet later in the movie. And that is weird. Because <laughs> he's supposed to be like the ultimate pragmatist, but it seems like, I don't know, his character jumps the shark. And I mean, it's designed that way, but it, it's, it's it's a bit perplexing. Yeah, and I mean, they, they set up right at the start that he's like, you know, really, if we talk about the ultimate out, outcome of nuclear war, it's us versus them, and I want the Americans to win. And so it starts off with him being like, okay, he's, he seems like, you know, this war isn't just us versus them. He's got like some sort of maybe like xenophobic element to him towards the the Ruskies. And so, so they set that up, but he does become like way extreme later on. Where yeah, then he turns into like this weird like Nazi thing. He's like, the Nazis told me what I need to do when it comes to defeating the enemy. And it's like, what the hell? Where'd this come from? Like, why is that there? <laughs> and like in the war room, the think tank. So when people, when they, everyone realizes what's happened, that there's this accident that's occurred, um, and they're trying their best, like, you know, to try to resolve the situation, obviously, because they're trying to avoid World War Three. But he looks at this as a happy accident. See that—that's just insanity. Yeah. Like, no, we should, we should just, you know, take this and run with it. Like, what? What? Yeah, and there's a very similar character in, in Doctor Strangelove, who's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's of course, it's a shame this is happening, but this is the perfect opportunity to strike and take out those Ruskies. But in Doctor Strangelove, he's played up as this, you know, cartoon joke who kind of is playing with his toys. Is In this one, yeah, it's more of an uglier take, but feels kind of just as cartoonish. It's kind of like, at what point are you guys just going to throw him out of the room? Like, he's not helpful anymore. He keeps going off on these. Like he's got a completely different strategy than everyone else. Like maybe maybe he doesn't have a place there with the rest of them. And he's not even part of the government. He's just a professor that they brought in. So, well, I guess something else I liked about Larry Hagman, his character um, as the interpreter, mm. really enhances his the interactions with um, the president character played by Fonda, um, and it's very useful to have the Hagman character there with him because otherwise it's a, it, it's a, it's a positive narrative choice because we get to hear 
the president's inner thinking by using the interpreter as being mm-hmm. there as having someone to converse with. You know what I mean? Because if this was a novel, you'd just be like reading what the president's thinking inside his head. But for yeah. the movie, it's it's really good to have that interpreter character there for him to talk to. And yeah, points, extra points for me because once upon a time, um, I was I was a general's driver in the in the Pentagon area, and uh, and I was just a lowly nobody, like, but I was the general's driver, and uh, I really loved working for that guy, and I feel like the relationship you saw between the interpreter and the president was kind of like the relationship I had with the general in real life. Hmm. Um, And that's one of the things I liked about the real person is because he was his general and, you know, he had all these executive decisions to make about things, but he would just run things by me just because I was the guy who was always, you know, there, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was so cool that he would just sometimes ask me my opinion on something just to hear what I, what I thought about X, Y, Z. And so, yeah, bonus, bonus points for me because I could just relate to that. And I like the way that was done. And then there was a couple people in the cast who I didn't really notice and didn't realize there were people who I knew from other things that I'm just seeing now uh, as we're having this conversation. I did not realize Boss Hogg from Dukes of Hazard was in this movie. And he actually played the congressman who I was talking about earlier. I called him a minister. Um, but he was the congressman who was visiting, um, I don't know what they call the Omaha location in this movie. Like the, Because um, it, it's what we would call NORAD nowadays. Um, but I don't know what they called it in the movie. Um, so he's that congressman who was just visiting. That's Boss Hawk. That's shocking. And then I didn't really recognize this other character. but the guy with the, the glasses, bald guy? Yeah, the glasses and the comb over. The, the civilian who was kind of touring. Okay. The facility that's boss hog that's crazy mm-hmm. and then it, i didn't even recognize this other notable name but apparently dom de louise played sergeant collins i'm not sure who sergeant collins is but just a notable name yeah i saw that in the, the opening i was like that's got to be a different dom de louise like i didn't see him in the movie no i think it's the dom de louise but i guess it, maybe he was playing like a playing like a bit character somewhere but yeah, whatever the that Omaha place was, I thought there was some really great stuff there. Um, but there was a scene right before we went there, because there's these two kind of lead guys there. We have, um, I wish I had, had the names in front of me. Uh, Bogan, I think one of them is called. <laughs> I think they're both colonels. Yeah, Bogan is one. Yeah, Colonel Bogan. And it might be... And then Colonel Casio or... Or Grady. I'm not sure which one it is. Is it Cassio the one who was in charge in charge? No, I think I think Grady was in the uh, the plane. Oh, okay. Yeah, Cassio. Yeah, Bogan was the one who was in charge and Cassio was the one who was like under him, but they always have scenes together. Yes. Cassio was the one who was with his parents. Yeah, were they his parents? I I mean I I wondered like what the hell that scene was, because later on he's like I know what you were thinking when you saw me with those people. I, I'm better than you. Like, oh, I'm not like like a, a poor man or something. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I thought it was his parents. 
was he embarrassed that he was living with his parents or was there some other dynamic well he that doesn't make any sense he wouldn't be living with his parents i thought maybe there was something i was missing i thought i don't know Jeez, now i'm gonna have to look up look up the plot real quick to see what it says about that encounter yeah i almost thought like was he like living in a drug den or something because it looked like he was when the guy came in he was like frazzled to be uh, discovered there even though he put the address down as where he was gonna be yeah um, but I think um, that character also has kind of a a turn where he kind of loses it a little bit. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, but I thought that that one developed a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, maybe play, playing it down a little bit. Yeah. I guess it developed better, but it was still ridiculous. Yeah. It's so stupid. It went too far. But it, it's understandable. I mean, at that point in the movie, they have to, they're working with the Russians actively because... I mean, if, if anyone knows the plot of Doctor Strangelove, yes, yeah, some some planes housing nuclear weapons get because of just a like a, a malfunction, head off head off on course to go and bomb Moscow, and so they have to work with the Ruskies down in this uh, operational control, whatever this place is, and they have to turn over like state secrets on how the planes work, and so this however you say his name, Casio, whatever it is. He like has a big freak out and tries to <laughs> take over the control. Hits his boss with a phone, and yeah, it got a little too ridiculous, I thought. But but it would also be difficult to turn over that information. So I don't know if it's true, but I heard that because you know this movie released after Strange Love in the same year. I mm-hmm. heard from another reviewer that supposedly when people saw this movie, even though it's supposed to be a straight up drama they unintentionally laughed throughout the movie perhaps being influenced oh, wow. by um dr strange love so if that's in fact true then i could just see people unintentionally laughing well yeah colonel casio was like freaking out like an idiot yeah that part went too far definitely but there was a scene earlier when he he had to give up some information but he just couldn't he was having like a fit and so they brought like his the guy directly under him over to do it and that guy looked like he was going to tear up giving over the information i thought that scene was handled really well and i wish that they just left it there and didn't come back for it with his little see attempted mutiny or whatever that was i'm gonna go off on a wild tangent for just a hot second but sure this is why i don't like star trek discovering <laughs> one of the reasons why <laughs> is because something that me and carl if you know who carl is from our other podcast ramen's bearing gifts we don't like in Discovery when these su- supposed like Federation types or Starfleet types just like completely lose all composure and have like mental mm. breakdowns because like these people are supposed to be like, the best of the best. They've been to the academy, they've had experiences. They're not supposed to break down like this in serious situations. That's not Starfleet, and that's all I can think about with this Colonel Casio, like. Oh my god, I, it would just be the most despicable thing to see this happen in real life. To see a, a, cur- a curl completely lose it like that? Ugh, it's, it's, it's almost too much to bear. Yeah, I was thinking some of that too. But then I was also thinking, like, like how do you train for a, a situation like that? Like, that's... You're literally giving away vital information to the enemy. Uh, and potentially a doomsday situation if they fail. It's a pr- pretty high pressure. There's no way you could train for that scenario ahead of time. But one thing you are trained for, is, and you really understand by the time you become a colonel, 
is that you don't go rogue against the president and the Pentagon. <laughs> Unless yeah. they're about to... <laughs> I, that That's one thing you learn in the military. Yeah, and again, that's part of why it was so ridiculous. He's like, Oh, the president's giving me direct commands that no one else knows about. Uh, this guy was a traitor. It's like everyone just heard the president, like, <laughs> like just like two scenes before. So yeah, it, it it got too ridiculous in that moment. But and then of course, a lot of the drama is taking place in the control room, control center, whatever it is in Omaha. Um, that's where now this movie started feeling like war games to me. Um, even more than Doctor Strangelove. Um, and, you know, I really like this movie overall, but the the most difficult part for me to get over, at least the way it's set up, is just the title of the movie, the fail state, the stupid fa- First, there's the error or the, the malfunction of the machine. Okay, fine. I guess, fine. So... So this plane gets sent this false confirmation order because a, basically a faulty part because the technician or somebody says, you know, this thing can happen. You know, a tra- transistor goes out, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, that's just a, a great howdy-do. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that sounds horrible if that's the system that you're relying everything on. And then that that was the first issue that I was like, I have to, like go with it which i could go with it but then it yeah. was further compounded later with all this stuff about you know these guys have their orders even if they hear the voice of the president they know that could be faked um okay i guess um but then to keep taking it further and like oh this is your own wife and she's telling you not to do this um, mm-hmm. and couldn't they get like every person that this pilot has ever worked with, like all of them can get on the radio and like, what? Oh fuck. The Russians, they're just impersonating everybody in my entire life. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? And so it bothered me so much that these guys were so, um, autonotonic, um, mm-hmm. like as if they were just like programmers, like, Really? I mean, at least those guys in Strangelove had some doubts and trepidation about what they were about to do. Yep. But these guys were like, well, fuck, we got the orders. And that that was another bridge. That was like a bridge that was almost like a bit too far for me. I I could get over the faulty machine, but then this shit with not being able to stop these guys, that, that just, that started to become a bridge too far. Yeah, I wondered why they included that scene. Like, what what benefit did we get from that? Was it really like, oh, these soldiers are so brainwashed by their orders that that even if you tell them, like, oh yeah, you know, two plus two equals four, they'll say say it equals five. Like, if they're ordered to say it, like that's kind of what it seemed like at that point. But just on the the faulty uh, part bit business, uh, maybe maybe you uh, gleam something different. I thought that. In the end, they were saying that the reason that the part malfunctioned was because of whatever those, whatever that ship was that came by and like jammed their communications and like fucked up their circuit. 
I thought that that's what what happened, or or was it two issues that that happened at the same time? Or was that explained later? I know they say that. Um, well, yeah, that's. See, so I was slightly confused. I couldn't tell if it was two separate issues that happened at once, or if they were both the same issue caused by whatever their new experimental uh, jammer was that that broke it. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I maybe lean more towards it was like a Jurassic Park thing where. Either way, they're relying on this technology that they didn't, you know, that they didn't really have their full grasp on. And and that's kind of a message to it at a certain point. I think the end speech is kind of like, we're men, like, we put these tools in place, like, we, we need to be able to still be men. Kind of, you know, not let the technology control us kind of thing. The message was good, but I don't know if it was delivered correctly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, they, they call the movie failsafe, and it's kind of like... Yeah, the, these supposed fail-safes are what fucked us in the end, so can we really trust them? But Also insane to send the fighters after the bomber, even though hmm. the fighters won't make it. So they get sent yeah. on a suicide mission for no reason. Well, I guess they think, uh, I mean, if they go and stop this, then, you know, that's that's something if they, even if they couldn't go and stop it, if they were just heading home. If the bombers got to its uh, stop, I mean, that's doomsday. That's right to uh, nuclear annihilation time, so. But they're like, oh, the guys won't get there in time. And they'll run out of gas, and they'll crash. <laughs> well, they can use afterburners, but it still won't be enough. We'll do it anyway. And then they're just, that's it. Well, I figured maybe they could, I mean, their they're shots, like, at least from the little radar thing that we saw, almost came close, but... <laughs> <laughs> And that's funny too. And it's not really a knock, but it, it is funny to me. Yeah, because there's very little footage. Like it's all. Hmm. It reminds me of playing Dungeons and Dragons, like or the text, the text only video games of the of the eighties on computer, where it's all in your mind. Like you're you're envisioning it, yeah. But all you see is little blips and blops. We don't actually hardly see any footage. And what little footage we see is stock footage. Um, And even some of that is like, ah, I was so confused by the bombers because the interior cockpit that we see, the the pilot, co-pilot, and navigator, Uh. (laughs) it doesn't match that plane that they show us that they're flying in. Yeah. (laughs) And that was really confusing. I kept thinking of that too. I was like, "Wait a minute, this this doesn't look right." <laughs> yeah, because I kept thinking the bomber was another fighter, but it was the bomber, and I was like, "What the? F- this, what the? F- oh, it's confusing." It'd be like if you were watching Star Wars and they're in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, you know, Chewie and Han and Luke, and then when they show the exterior shots, they're like in an X-wing, and you'd be like, "Wait a second, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> how that's." <laughs> That's distracting. Yeah, no, it was. It was a little bit like, wait, what's going on here? And I was like, is that the Russian fighters? Like, what is that? Yeah, I was having trouble figuring that out. It wasn't until like later in the movie I just went with it. Okay, I guess that is the yeah. bomber. Yeah, I just went with it too. Yeah, the movie's not really about that either. It's more about the the acting and the the kind of courtroom drama type thing. Well, you know, it's not a courtroom, <laughs> close quarters drama. Apparently. They could only use that limited um, stock footage that they used because um, the Air Force was completely against 
any of this depiction of these events yeah. shown in the movie. So they did not endorse this movie in any way. Can very much understand that. <laughs> but it makes me wonder if they if they endorsed anything with Doctor Strange Love because we have beautiful airplane shots in that movie throughout. Yeah, and maybe maybe they liked Kubrick's they're like, hey that Paz of Glory, that was quite good. You know, here here you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure that was the selling point. <laughs> um but yeah, because the military I mean yeah, yeah, besides that Colonel uh, Casico, or however you say his name, I I mean, yeah, he's a big fuck-up. But even, like, some of the other guys that we see, it, it doesn't seem like they're all that competent all the way around, um, necessarily. And there's that, that senator that weirdly has, like, some sort of ish, issues with his legs or something. Like, there's almost, like, this, this government's, like, filled with all these old... Oh, he was the, uh, the, he was the Secretary of Defense. Oh, Secretary of Defense. It's like, yeah, look at the military. It's filled with all these old folks. Like, some of them are even, like, decrepit. Like, I wonder if that was meant to be some sort of a comment. Well, I thought that was weird that he was semi-crippled. And then, of course, the character in Dr. Strangelove is in the wheelchair. And I always feel that's, like, somehow, like, a reference to FDR or something. Hmm. I don't know what that is, but weird, interesting choice, but I'm not sure what they're trying to say in the movie. Yeah, I thought I thought maybe that was, even though that, that Secretary of State, I mean, he seems fairly competent, but I thought maybe that was, initially at least I thought, that was supposed to be some sort of a comment, like, oh, look at what this, look at what this government is. It's like fraying at the edges, like we're at like a point in time when nothing's really at its best. But then once we get to the president himself, he seems pretty on the ball. Yeah, let me say something weird. Let me get a weird footnote commentary for a second. Something I always thought was weird about the the structure of the the chain of command at the at the highest level in the US military. So, real quick, American US Civics 101. Um, you have the, all the military and the different military branches and there's there's two people at the top of the military above all the generals and everybody there's the secretary of defense and there's the chairman joint chief of staff and the chairman joint chief of staff is the highest ranking person in all the military it doesn't matter if it's navy army whatever it's the highest ranking general of the whole entire military u.s military but even though they're the highest ranking they're not technically in charge of the military they don't give direct orders their function is to be advisor to the president because technically the president of the United States is the overall commander in chief of the whole U S military and the chairman joint chief of staff, who's a military general and the secretary of defense are supposed to be his right and left hand man, so to speak. Um, And the concept is one's a general, obviously in, in uniform. So he represents a military person and the secretary of defense just wears a regular suit because the concept is he's a civilian, even though he's like in charge of the whole military himself. He's like between the president and the rest of the military, the secretary of defense. So I get the concept. We have a military guy and a civilian guy, and it's supposed to be like some kind of weird yin and yang advisement for the president, right? Sounds good on paper, right? But what I always thought was weird coming up in the military is that even though the Secretary of Defense is quote-unquote a civilian, by and large, 
all those guys are ex-retired military who serve in that position. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So does that really make sense? <laughs> Just because one's wearing a uniform and one's not? But technically, they're both military people, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Does that seem weird? It does seem weird. Like, what value does it does it have doing that? Because I get it. He's in a civilian suit. But generally speaking, those guys are all veterans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, no, we have a guy who's looking out for other interests. But they're all military men. And it's it's even weirder if you go back in the day because, you know, back in the day most U.S. presidents were former military themselves. So, in fact, mm-hmm. you had, like, three military guys in charge um, in the old days. Um, but anyway, that's it. That's just my weird side commentary. It's something I've always thought has been strange, like, my whole life, knowing how the military is set up, at least in this country. No, that is that is interesting. And it's actually, uh, whatever that, is it the war room section? Yeah. That we get the most kind of heated debates. And I think even though it does go to a little bit of a cartoonish level later with uh, Walter Matthau, I do think most of those scenes uh, excel pretty well with the drama between that, that group. Oh, yeah. And seeing all the different debates. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah, and one of the kind of funny funny things about the movie is we, we get all these these constants. It, this, this movie kind of reminds me of Shin Godzilla, except... <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Except this government seems less competent like it seems like there's a lot of folks around who are just not particularly helpful and most of the decision making comes down to what the president decides and they even come up they even uh mention early on they're like oh like the fail safes but isn't it all down to what the president you know decides who's above him and they kind of question whether that's right but if the if the president did make his fairly controversial decision at the end i mean doomsday so but I, we didn't see we didn't see any of the other people agree to that really. It just kind of came out of nowhere, and it was like, holy fuck, that's that's a huge thing to jump to. I mean, it made sense. But... So, what do you think about the end? Like, okay, spoiler now. If you have any intention to watch this movie, click off now. <laughs> but okay, so ultimately they fail in preventing the U.S. pilots from dropping their payload on Moscow, mm-hmm. vaporize the the. The Russian, uh, I forget what he was. Maybe he was a minister or whoever that liaison was. Ambassador, I think. Yeah, ambassador. So they wipe out Moscow. So to make it even, so to prevent Russia from having full-on retaliation, they, they said, you know, fine, if we accidentally blow up Moscow, then as a sign of goodwill, we will bomb our biggest city ourselves. Holy shit! And his wife was there, and he knew it. <laughs> well, it's like holy. The fuck. president's wife was there. Yeah, and just if that wasn't enough, yeah, the pilot of doing the bombing run, his wife and kids live in New York. Also, what the fuck? Yeah, Blackie, who was like a like a childhood or a a college friend with, with the the pilot that he sends off, because I guess he couldn't trust anyone else to follow out his orders. Yeah, no, that, that's such a crazy... And it, I mean, by the time it shows up in the movie, like, I'm completely into the movie, and I'm, like, emotionally taken on that ride. But it is a, a crazy leap, and I was like, holy fuck, like... <laughs> and I can, I can kind of see why it's in the script or the story of the movie. Mm-hmm. 
because you know we were talking earlier about i mean offline we were talking about like or i was talking about what i think makes good sci-fi it makes you question things from another another point of view and i don't want to rehash the debate on pearl harbor because i know it can get weirdly contentious nowadays on college campuses when people try to argue pro-con of using nuclear weapons against Japan in World War II. Um, I mean, it's weird, I think, in hindsight, the way people try to justify other courses of action. Um, yeah, and they kind of bring it up in this movie, too. about whether Yes. That being said, there's some kind of weird, ridiculous logic in this movie... Um, as to why you would bomb New York yourself. Because I guess they're trying to use the same logic as Hiroshima and... Is it Nagasaki? Yep. Yeah, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. I guess they're trying to use the same weird logic that it's the greater good to sacrifice... They say that there'll be at least 3 million casualties initially and additional 1 to 2 million casualties you know, weeks later because of radiation. Mm-hmm. But... They're looking at that as a better option than having full-on World War Three and da, da da da. I get it. I mean, I get. I don't know. Does it work? I mean, or does it seem like you've jumped the shark on the premise? Well, well, if if the alternative is yeah, full out, full-on nuclear war. I mean, yes, it's definitely beats the alternative because full-on nuclear war. Yes. Understand. I mean, there's a reason that they call it nuclear Armageddon. I mean, <laughs> doomsday. I I get that, but is it a question of, of is this a false choice in logic terms? The choices are because if they're taking out Moscow, I mean, at this point they've already warned the Rus- the Russians what's happening. This isn't like you know like an, a surprise attack. It's kind of like okay, we have to either find a way to end this conflict right away and kind of find a way to build bridges or us blowing up Moscow is going to be kind of the end of our civilizations. So I, I think they make that clear. Yeah, I, I get the Yeah, that's... understand. But destroy New York City. Yeah, it's... And he even meant, does the biblical mention of, like, it's it's kind of like a sacrifice for our sins. So even though it's a, a horrible sacrifice, and I'm, I'm positive he's not being reelected, if not... Uh... <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a civil war within the United States. Yes, but at least they'll exist, and you know they they won't have to endure a twenty year nuclear winter of the. <laughs> oh my god! So it's it's. I mean, and then when you come down to the nuclear conflict, I mean, it really is like existential. So I can understand why he would be like, okay, let's just like whatever I need to do to make sure this doesn't happen. I have no idea when our conversation right now will actually hit a feed somewhere because it'll probably be several weeks from the time of recording. Um, but at least in the here and now, it's very germane talking about this subject, not just because of mm-hmm. what's going on currently in the Ukraine-Russia uh, situation, but uh, it's just it, it just went viral just yesterday, um, this video of, of, a, um, of an anti-nuke guy going off on uh, AOC, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman. Had you had you seen this? No, no, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. She's having like a local little like 
what do you call that? Like like a little local looks like a local town hall, like in her district. Mm. Like like a small time affair. That's nice. Like talking to her constituents. But yeah. there's this one guy who looks like he's eh, college age and he gets up. They're in a, like a, a local auditorium, uh, but there's not that many people there. And he just gets up and he's just like how can you be like how can you endorse like the president and all this how can you endorse the president's backing of ukraine leading us to, like closer to world war three like how can you do that how can you not like how can you just go along with the democrats why aren't you speaking out against this you're a complete hypocrite um and you're doing nothing you're talking about gender rights and da 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 well, we're on our way to like World War Three, and you're doing nothing about it. And he's like completely losing his shit, and it's just been making the rounds, and that, that just happened yesterday in real time. And and I, I have to admit, as a guy who reads um, world news every day, <laughs> um, every morning when I wake up for like the last week, this is true. I immediately go to the news feeds. And every day I keep expecting to hear when I wake up that like a nuclear device was, was deployed in that region. Yep. Yeah, me too. And I feel like most people are not thinking about that. No. But I keep thinking like, oh my gosh, when, if and when it does happen, then what's going to happen after that? Yep. Um, like, will there be some like st- strategic um, retaliation that's already in place? Well, I'm assuming that's what they have set up, but how will that work like i don't know yeah and this is getting away into the weeds but did you hear you remember that like weird assassination that happened a few months ago with some i can't remember who it was some uh import import official in russia's daughter was assassinated out of nowhere okay and just recently was discovered that it was the ukrainians who did it and they they like uh their escape route took them through estonia and so a lot of people were freaking out about that because they're like holy fuck don't involve any sort of NATO countries at all in this, like, holy shit, the Russians decided they need to go in there. That's going to cause even more heightened tensions with, so it's like, oh, it's, a, yeah, it's really scary times for, for people who are scared of nuclear war. I did not hear that story that you just said. Yeah, really, really not good. <laughs> but I was going to say, uh, this movie, um, once I was finally done all the disaster movies of the 70s, my next retrospective that I was going to do was nuclear movies, because I love nuclear holocaust films. But now I'm like, uh, maybe it's bad times to be freaking myself out by watching a lot of nuclear holocaust movies. So well, we can start with Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> did you watch the HBO Chernobyl series? Yeah, I sure did. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that that's it. That's all we need to watch. Nothing else. That's it. Did you ever see uh, Threads? I don't know. No, I don't know what that is. Oh my gosh, Threads! It's like a a nightmare. It was produced, um, I think it was the BBC, and it was done like it's, uh, it's done as if it's like a documentary, like, okay, here's what's the beginning of the dropping the bombs, and then it goes ahead, like, maybe like a year or two into it, and it's just like complete degradation of society, and it's just unrelentless and crippling, the movie, it's, it's really, really harsh, but a great movie, but so when you painful. When you compile this list, will you restrict it to... Things that deal with the actual nuclear warfare, or will you like count things that are post-apocalyptic as well? I.e., Mad Max and or not Mad Max, I guess the Road Warrior and other things. 
Yeah, no, this is all specifically to do with nuclear fallout. But I don't even know when I put this list together. It's maybe like... Oh, it was in March of last year. Wow. March 2021. I guess I've been doing this disaster movie thing for a long time now. That's insane, sir. That's insane. But the prologue, the first one, was failsafe. So it's I'm, I'm thinking that I might actually start it now that I've got to this. It even says prologue. <laughs> oh, the weird things I do. To go on that type of journey, it seems so sadomasochistic. So like so, so much. It feels like self-flagellation to me. Oh yeah, I don't know what I. I mean, I think I was just enjoying the disasters. I was like, oh, you can't get a bigger disaster than nuclear devastation. I'll do that next. <laughs> Sixteen films. Yikes. <laughs> um, but uh, but where are we with this movie? What else do we? I mean, we could talk a little bit about uh, Blackie, played by uh, Dan O'Hearly. Oh, her 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 I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, O'Hearly. I don't know. Yeah, the the whole time I was watching this this movie, I was like, why does this guy's voice sound so familiar? Like he doesn't look uh, like I don't recognize him, but his voice. It turned out he was the uh, the main villain in Halloween Three: Season of the Witch and the old man in RoboCop. Oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I was like, oh, yeah. I thought he was quite good in the movie as kind of the more grounding uh, voice against Walter Matthau's extremely hawkish, I don't know, like Republican lunatic or whatever he is. I don't know what. No, he was, he was, he was a, he was like Antifa in the, not, not the real Antifa, but I mean, he was, he was so Vietnam, Vietnam, vehement, vehemently anti-communist that he was like a mirror image of a fascist himself, which was just, that, that was too much. Yeah, it went too far. It was like, this would have worked if this was more like a Doctor Strange love. Where it was exactly. Exactly. It didn't feel so real world. Like, there are definitely right-wing like talk show hosts, like a Rush Limbaugh back during the Iraq War, who is like that crazy. But he would never actually be in the room with the real people. <laughs> so it's like, it, it just... I, I feel like they should have thrown him out once the situation started. It's like, why the hell would he be there? Yeah, he he can't... He started off as a sane voice, so to speak, Somewhat. sober sane voice in the movie, and then I don't remember what Russian ball was like during the Iraq conflict, but I guess the way people perceive like Alex Jones type these days, he turns into that kind of character, I guess. Well, yeah, and it, it because this movie is supposed to be grounded in realism, yeah, it, it really sticks out. Well, the thing is, he doesn't go crazy. He's just like, he's so, I don't know, like I said, kind of xenophobic, but that doesn't seem like the correct word. But he, he, it seems like he, all he can think about, even before this event, this is just like his moment to really expose himself. All he can think about is just destroying his enemy. Like, there's so much, like, they're an existential, like, threat to, to us existing. As long as these Ruskies are alive, like, that's like a threat to us. We need to wipe them out completely. Like, he seems like he wants total genocide of all Russians at a certain point later in the movie. And it's like, whoa, like... Yeah, what? but he comes across like the like the ultimate terrorist, though. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, genocidal yeah, maniac, really. <laughs> but it's even like, what he's saying is in no way helpful strategically. Like, they've already well moved past his kind of plan by the time he's still bringing it up. They should have been like, okay, if you've got nothing useful to add, just like shut up and sit down or get out, because 
<laughs> at this point, you're just distracting us. And it was kind of funny that at the very end, after they're like, okay, we've already decided that we're going to, you know, bomb New York, and it's going to be gone. It was kind of odd that they gave him, like, a moment to show some value, where he's like, okay, you know, I, we still need to protect our economy if this is going to be what what's happening. A lot of businesses keep important documents there, so we need to organize a way to get those documents out and, you know, protect our economy. And I was like, wait, so now he's the a rational... It almost <laughs> felt like a little bit of, like, cover to be like, yeah, we know he went too far with making him a little bit of a caricature. Let's show that he has some... Like, he's not just completely uh, useless kind of villain. That he has some sort of benefit. That was so weird when he was saying, like, you know, we can do without these important documents because that stuff's not that important, the governmental documents. But all these companies having their headquarters in New York and losing all their stuff. And he said, we're going to have to try to recover as much as we can because it's going to destroy, you know, um, our economy. What? Like, what are these documents they have that, (laughs) that if we keep them like, like what are these like secret codes or like the formula to Coca-Cola? Like what? Yeah. I wasn't sure what he meant either. What are these documents that we're going to try to like salvage? Because he's like, there's no point trying to rescue the people. But if we can like try to recover as much of these corporate documents, what is in these documents that <laughs> will keep our economy going? Yeah, it's like maybe I just don't know what things were like back then before computers could just like house information. Maybe maybe it was like all their banking. Right, are they gonna be like <laughs> all their banking information? I know. Like, are they, are, they, are these companies going to be like, oh my god, like? How many warehouses do we have? Where are warehouses located? I don't know. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we better take a trip to New York and go through the files. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get it. Like, was everyone gonna forget how to work the factories and how to drive like it, the, the 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 trucks and the trains? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> that was kind of weird. Yeah, it was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that they were trying to trying to bring him back to some sort of semblance of respectability but i was like you've already lost him like just like the guy should have like had a heart attack when i don't know (laughs) i just didn't want to see him anymore and i'll say uh it is interesting like if you know him for his more comedic roles it is interesting to see him play this heavy douchebag in a serious drama yeah i was just about to say he plays a and a role in a movie called um a face in the crowd he plays kind of this reporter who's supposed to be like He's supposed to be the good guy who knows everything that's going on, and he's kind of the moral center of the movie. But he plays it the same way, where he's so smug and obnoxious that I'm like, okay, you're saying all the right things, you have the right ideas, but you're such a smug asshole that I just want you to get off the screen. <laughs> so I don't know if it was just a Walter Matthau bringing that to the role. Like, maybe if he didn't play it this way, we could accept the character more, but, but I felt the same way by the end. I was like, I don't really want to look at him anymore. He's kind of... And I like Walter Matthau, but just these two roles, something about him just puts me off. He's Mr. What's-His-Name from Dennis the Menace. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, that, that whole Hitler thing I thought was a really weird thing to introduce. Like, I just thought that was so strange. Well, the other bombastic statement he had was uh, when they said, what you're talking about is what the Japanese did um, when they bombed Pearl Harbor. And he was like, and they were right to do that. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, they were right to do that. They had no idea that we had this other thing going on. 
but that was a good decision. Like, oh, holy shit. So their only failure is, yeah, they didn't go far enough to wipe us out. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> you really think they're capable of? Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah, he just went too crazy. And But I, I did rewatch that, that first scene of his when there's that chick for, who we met at the party who, like, yeah, tries to sleep with him and he slaps her across the face and he's like, I'm not like you. Because she was like, oh, you know, I like to think about all that destruction. But then he makes it seem like he's, like, not like a homicidal maniac, which he displays later in the movie. So I was like, what's that bit? Is that, like those politicians who like rage against like oh we're so against this thing and it turns out that they're you know doing that thing behind closed doors i wonder if that's what that was meant to be or if i just completely misunderstood that scene or i don't know i'm gonna say this sarcastically um but you're reminding me of when me and sean are going through old movies from back in the day especially during the haze code and i'm saying this sarcastically everyone i don't mean this seriously but in those other conversations me and Sean have, I would say, oh, he's like, he, it's, the, it's the pink agenda. He's a coded gay character. That's his way of expressing uh, he's not That's, straight. <laughs> I was very much thinking that. And I think part of his presentation, like as you watch the movie, and as, especially as it goes on, everyone starts to look kind of you know stressed and sweaty and a little disheveled. But he always has this kind of air of above it all. He's he's more stylishly dressed, his hair. So I always got this smug look. And yeah, he slapped that chick in the beginning for, you know, wanting to sleep with him, basically. So I did wonder if there was some sort of weird, potentially slightly homophobic kind of gay coding towards him. But I, I wasn't too sure, but it it gave me a vague inkling of that. It always it, it's always hard to know in, in older movies. It's all cause because things always mean multiple things. Like, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, there, there's this classic movie. It gets overlooked. It was nominated for Best Picture. It's called, um, oh my God, Goodbye Mr. Chips, I think. It's a good movie, mm-hmm. but it gets overlooked because it came out in 39. And if you know anything about the Oscars, there was a slew of incredible movies that came out and were nominated in that same year. So, so goodbye, Mr. Chips gets completely overlooked um, because there's the wizard of Oz and gone with the wind and these heavy hitters. Um, but goodbye, Mr. Chips is about this old retiring um, teacher and like, you know, in a boys like boarding school. Uh, and, but he's taught in the school, for like 40 years or something. He's like Professor McGonagall, but like a man. <laughs> and they do mention like how he's been a bachelor. This, like, dude, this has to be some kind of homosexual coding. Like, come on, this guy, like, since his youth, he's been a bachelor and he just works at a boys' school. I mean, he doesn't do anything nefarious. He's like a very, like, Mr. Miyagi, like, respectable character. But. If someone in the old days in movies, if you were like above 30 and a bachelor, you know what I mean? That's code, wink, wink, you know, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's just, if you watch the movie, there's nothing homosexual or homophobic at all about him. But that ha- that's still in the back of my mind, though, because it's still notable that he never really like found true romance. 
in the opposite sex. Yeah, and sometimes looking back on that coding stuff can be can be interesting and cool. This one, I don't know if that's what they're going for, and it it feels just kind of weird because I don't fully get what the. It seems like, and I don't know because I'm not an expert on this subject in any way. I mean, as it pertains to literature or film, but because he is such a nefarious, um, dislikable character, I feel like maybe it is like what you know. It's it's just yeah. Let's just give this person a quality that that is just um, um. It's like in Game of Thrones. Like not only is this person a despicable leader, but uh, but they also practice incest. You know what I mean? Like just mm. to like really hammer home how um, what's the word uh, when something is so vile and yeah, it's gonna say repugnant. And, uh, <laughs> repugnant yeah it's just ugh, ugh. there's just and, and maybe that is a weird aspect of his character i mean when you really think about it hmm yeah, and that would be curious for sydney lumay sydney lumay because uh it was only i think uh, i don't actually I don't remember when dog day afternoon came out but that that uh has a very i mean the lead's a gay character so that was 75 75 and yeah, that's held up as one of the more positive uh, examples of homosexuality from the uh, from this era. I guess it's a little not this era. But. I don't. Okay, I'm also not an expert on Sydney, and I always always pronounce it Sydney Lumet, but I think people tell me it's supposed to be called pronounced Lumet. Oh, Lumet. Uh, but anyway, mm. I've seen some of his movies, but I'm in no way an expert on his body of work, and obviously it's humongous. But yeah, me too. That being said. From what I have seen of his movies, was I talking to you? And I don't remember if it was on a podcast or we were just speaking on the side. And I was saying, uh, well, I think I said this to you and Sean at a different time. I see Sidney Lumet as like like a Ridley Scott. Like, I don't know how much of their movies are them in particular. Or if it's just, they're the captain of a ship. But they didn't really decide what the ship was going to look like or where the ship was going to go. They're just going to get it there. But it's the other people around them who add more of the distinct flavor to whatever the project is. Does that make sense? Yeah, except I can definitely feel the continuity with 12 Angry Men. I agree. Like, I feel like the his grasp on tension is, is very much there. But I, I get what you mean. And th- Well, that's the thing, because cause there are certain Ridley Scott movies where you can see a connection... You know, you go, oh, I can see how Blade Runner was from the guy who made Alien. Oh, I see that. But then you see some other Ridley Scott movie and you go, wait a second. This is like completely different. This is nothing like those. Yeah, I could see him being like a Robert Wise type where they just came from a different era of Hollywood. Where it was more like you're a bit of a chameleon director. Except uh, Robert Wise and Sidney Lumet, I guess. (laughs) Could keep their their quality across to different projects. Whereas someone like Ridley Scott just... (laughs) It varies so dramatically. <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I never really thought about the Robert Wise connection, but I could definitely see them. I mean, I think they worked. I think they were contemporaries through their, throughout their career, so maybe they just came from a, a similar school of thought. And like I said, I was very surprised in... Uh, what's that movie called? One of his, one of his last movies. Really, Scott? No, um, Sidney Lumet. Uh, Before the Dove Knows You're Dead. I really enjoyed that movie. Um, it's kind of, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's kind of low key, low key little caper. Everything goes sideways. It's almost like a premise yeah. of like a, 
um, a Coen Brothers movie, except not done anyway the way the way the Coen Brothers would do it if they were doing it themselves, um, but a premise that like they would do. Um, but I really enjoyed that movie back when I rented it on Blu-ray a million years ago, and I remember I watched the special features, and whatever year that movie came out, it very much looks like movies of that time. Um, let's see. Yeah, 2007. 2007, yeah. And in the special features, it's explained, you know, he was like, Sidney Lumet, he's just like, oh yeah, we had these like digital cameras, the whole movie is shot digitally, it's amazing. Like, you can just shoot everything and it's so much easier than film. Like, it was it was odd to me that this really old, old, old looking guy um, like completely embraced like this digital technology um, for that movie. <laughs> And I know that's one of the things I noticed watching it on Blu-ray is that it looked incredibly sharp, which is distracting to me with 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 those modern movies. Um, but yeah. I just thought it was weird that this old school guy was just like fully on board with an all digital production. Yeah, and I, just uh, talking about some of the more curious choices in this one. What do you think about that whole dream se- sequence in the beginning? Well, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um. Okay, first of all, it looks really strange. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, what they've done to it, like, because there's a little bit of crude rotoscoping going on, but I'm assuming it's intentionally mm-hmm. done crudely. And so we see this matador, and then I don't even know what these, I don't know what these different different implements are called because I'm not an expert on a connoisseur on the sport. And it is jarring at first because it says. New York City, 5.30 a.m. And then there's a bullfight. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, Uh was bullfighting a thing in New York in the 60s? Me too. Like, I I seriously was thinking that maybe that was a thing and I had no idea. But then, so you see the matador and you see them. I don't know what the spike spear things are, but they're they're getting them into the the back or whatever of the, of the, the bull. And eventually it goes down, like, onto the ground. But there's this weird rotoscoping, like I said, where not entirely, but throughout much of the sequence, the bull is, like, blacked out. And I thought it was, like, some weird rotoscoping to, like, censor the bull or something. Kind of like what they did in the censored version of Eyes Wide Shut, where they digitally put bikinis on everybody during the orgy scene. Um, and they were just black bikinis. And I thought, is that what they're doing? Because it would be too grotesque to just show the actual dead bull like big on the screen. And I, I still don't know if censorship of the of the visual was because of that reason or because they just wanted to make it look surreal. I don't know. Um and Well, well, it's it's also very clear they like inserted him into like real footage, and so he's got like this cartoony glow around yes. him. Yes, and so I think, yeah, I think that the two of them are meant to like stand out as like these are the two figures of this moment that we need to pay yes. attention to. Like these are these unreal things. So, and then at the very end of the movie, Colonel Black, I guess, is Colonel Black. He has this like rosebud yep. moment. Yeah, <laughs> and he's just like, uh-huh. I'm the matador. I'm the matador. What the fuck? 
I don't get what that revelation is supposed to mean that he's the matador in his dream. Yeah, at first I thought because uh, during that dream sequence, um, they're trying to they're trying to steer the bull into these these like bags, and so I was like, oh okay, so like um, maybe the bull is, is supposed to represent the bomb. Like oh, once we use the bomb, we can't you know we can't turn around and you know bring things back to what it used to be. Once the bomb's used, it's a different kind of world. But then I was like, okay, but, but he's the one using the bomb to <laughs> to blow up the New York at the end. So I was like, uh, I mean, now I'm a little lost. Yeah, I don't know. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. And it seems like it's supposed to be revelatory at the end. Yeah. The way Rosebud, you go, oh, it's the sled. But this is just like, what? Yeah, yeah no, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> and I assumed throughout the movie, I was like, okay. You know, we saw this beginning. He's clearly going to be our like protagonist. He's going to be the one trying to get control of the situation and try to, you know, work around all these kind of crazy folks who, or or, or something like that. Because maybe I was thinking of Doctor Strange Love too. He was going to have to work around a bunch of kind of warmonger types, but that's really not the case. I mean, he's just one in a long line of opinions about what to, what to do here, and he just happens to be the one that's selected to go and bomb New York, but. But otherwise, he doesn't seem particularly stand out among the cast in terms of what he adds to the uh, the equation or the conversation, as I should say. So yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely definitely still confused, and and I also thought the way he played the I'm the Matador bit just maybe went a little bit too too much as well, and like he he poisoned himself right after he he dropped the bomb and killed himself, and he's just saying that as he died. I was a bit like ah maybe. Maybe this is another in, in a few scenes at this point that have just played a little bit too arch. And it feels a little like maybe this would work better on the stage, but in a theatrical film, it feels a little silly. Oh my gosh. So I just Googled, you know, what does the bull fighting scene mean in Failsafe? And I got connected to somebody's vlog or blog, I should say. <laughs> so if someone wrote a blog about it, and obviously it was written in modern times. This is written in 2020. And I just skimmed the whole thing real quick. And in summation, this person is looking back on this movie and they're describing like the bullfight as representing like the Cold War. But furthermore, they feel like because okay, so, so the bullfight, this archaic display, um, the bullfight is supposed to represent the Cold War, but furthermore they say that it represents the the um, the patriarchal world that we were still in in the 1960s because in the movie the movie is predominantly um, populated by all men male characters um, and that the bullfight like as grotesque as that is a, a sight to see um, the way Colonel Black sees it in his dream it's because the bullfight represents toxic masculinity um, and how the world can run amok uh, when just men are in charge. Um, and the person explains how there's only a few females in the movie, but what few females there are that that they represent like truth in the movie, but because there's so many men that the whole bullfight represents like in short, like 
the destruction that could come by like the mistakes of of man the male kind um um so that yeah basically in a male dominated world that i don't know i just i can't read a blog written in modern times that gets into like using like these catchphrase words of our current time you know what i mean catchphrases like like toxic masculinity that, that kind of thing or Yes, it's, it feels weird, like, to look back at any classic piece and and look at it through very modern eyes. I guess is the point. It it just more seems like they're reading into a weird piece of the movie because really all the female characters represent truth. What about that crazy chick who's like, yeah, I just love hearing you talk about destroying those Russians. Like, I just love that kind of stuff. Like, she she, she seemed like she was not a not a particularly. Uh, I mean, maybe that's a truth that people are a little barbaric and you know love uh, the kind of game of of killing each other. But <laughs> I don't know if that's the truth. Yeah, that's what they're kind of that's what they're saying also about the bullfight of like that's what a bullfight represents. Like it's something that like quelled the masses, you know, kind of like equating. They didn't say this, but like equating it to like Hunger Games or something. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the women that we see are in, in that party scene, and they don't have any lines, so. It just seems like we're reading into... Oh, I guess there's two other significant females. The one that, of course, is begging the pilot not to drop the bomb on Moscow. And then I guess yep. General Black's wife um, yep. tells her husband that he should resign like because of his dream or whatever. Yeah, which is too bad that he didn't. I mean, could have uh, been with her when they both died in New York. <laughs> that sure is sad for... Like... And then before she gets slapped... The, the beautiful, gorgeous woman tells the professor, you make death and entertainment, something that can be played in the living room. And then he slaps her soon after that. <laughs> yep. And says, you're not my kind. Man, when I just read it like that on the page, you are not my kind, it makes it really plays into what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, no, and, and putting that scene right, right at the front does feel like it's meant to, to say something. But I thought it was meant to be like, oh, I'm not the type of person who just like kind of worships violence or revels in violence. I'm, I'm superior to that. But then it turns out that he really isn't. And he's like the biggest war hawk you could find. Yes. So, so it's weird. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, do we... Oh, I guess another thing I wanted to mention was uh, I really do think some of the best stuff in the movie is between the president and um, with Larry Hagman. I don't remember the, the character's name, but... I feel like a lot of those scenes with just the president talking to the prime minister of Russia, I think those scenes are super duper tense. And I like how it's not shot very cinematically. It's just like a lockdown camera of the two men just talking on a phone. Yes. But it's super tense and super well performed by both actors. It is well done. But again, it's done well. Like, yes, I agree. 12 Angry Men is, is really well done. Was 12 Angry Men... Uh, this is a dumb. It's gonna sound like a dumb, ignorant question. But was it a theatrical movie or was it for television? I'm pretty sure it's theatrical film. Yeah, I guess I could take a look. It just, it just feels so for the small screen. Yeah, they feel like yeah, stage plays. Like maybe, maybe that's what he used to do, and he kind of brought that element to to films. Um, let me see, Twelve Angry Men. But I think it really works for for both these movies especially in those those phone scenes. I mean, you could 
I guess I didn't really think about it either, but is there any music in this movie, really? There's not. There's no score. Hmm. And it's definitely a big moment when we hear that weird buzz or tone that they preface um, yeah. when they talk about uh, what they're going to hear once the bomb hits Moscow, what they're going to hear over the... Oh my god, this is Dom DeLuise. I'm looking, he's on screen right now as I'm watching. Oh, wow. It's so weird, because he's a little portly <laughs> sergeant. Oh, interesting. Interest, it is interesting. Um, and, and then another lacking question I had in the back of my mind throughout the movie, and I still don't know the answer, and I don't know if I ever will. In what way, if any, did Henry Fonda and him being in this movie... In what way did it, or not at all, influence um, his daughter later, later in time? Oh, <laughs> because his daughter is 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 just about the figurehead, the poster child of the anti-nuke um, um, mm. cause from the late sixties probably till till present day. Um I mean she spearheaded that movement and you could make an argument that her spearheading that movement is one of the reasons why we don't have like the nuclear energy that seems like it would make things a lot better. See this is the this is the irony of yeah. life and the world and the Bible and just the bullfighting, the irony of saying no nukes, no nukes, nukes are bad, nuclear power bad, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl bad, no nuclear energy, then ironically, that can further escalate us toward World War Three in our present day. It's the weird irony. Yeah. <laughs> really? really? Oh my gosh. Yeah, and that was, a, of course, a purposeful... Uh, conf- is it conflag- conflagration? I, I I can't figure out the word. <laughs> I, I at least I can't find it right now. Like conflagration. Con- I think that's it. Something. Yeah, purposely done by the oil industries by combining nuclear weapons and yeah, nuclear energy and being like, oh, it's one and the same. Look at these couple disasters that happened. Don't look at all of our hundreds of disasters. Just look at these few nuclear ones and yeah, say no to nukes. Well, there you go. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, but. Jane Fonda leading the movement definitely helped in that in that propaganda or that campaign of making mm-hmm. nuclear energy just like seem really bad in in the general zeitgeist. Yeah, what a shame. What a shame. But she was just anti Cold War, anti yeah, anti war in general, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> she she was that too. She was that as well, there's no doubt. I mean of course she had her uh her hate for many years because of her, yeah, her Vietnam activism. Yes. She's like the mirror image of the Walter Matthau character. I mean, the foil. No, no. <laughs> I would not I would not go that far. No, she's the opposite extreme, which is like the the path out of this is pacifism. She's like he's like the ultimate ridiculous hawk and she's like the complete opposite dove version. Well, it's just weird to compare because, of course, he's a like a genocidal maniac. You know, I'll take it, whatever directly opposite him is. Yeah, much... They both have the, all the best intentions in the world, but neither extreme really seems like a viable option. Well, I wouldn't call his uh, you know, wanting to wipe out a whole group of people 
uh, the best uh, intentions. But well, again, he was doing the whole needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> That's what he was doing in, in his mind. Yeah, and there was a uh, there was a C.S. Lewis book I read a little while ago called Out of the Silent Planet, and it had a character who was like he was trying to find a new planet for humanity, and and he was just like also like a genocidal maniac. Where he was like, I'll wipe out whatever indigenous species I find because humanity needs to survive. And at one point, the alien species is like, it's going to take thousands of years before your humanity gets here, and they'd have to change into different beings to exist here. And he's like, as long as they came from Earth, as long as they're, you know, related to me in some way, that's who I want to protect. So this guy's kind of a similar, like, just a big loon. Like, I don't care if I have to completely destroy American values. As long as the American bloodline exists, then I'm happy. So it's just kind of, maybe that was a character that was... Oh, C.S. Lewis wrote that? That sounds interesting. Yeah, really cool book, a sci-fi book. And by the way, the the actor who plays Colonel Casio, the one who loses his marbles in Omaha, Fritz Weaver, I saw mm-hmm. I saw a picture of him in, in in this in the '60s, but in color, and he just looks like if Beto O'Rourke and uh, and John Kerry had a son, or he also <laughs> oh, looks wow. like uh, Brian yeah. Williams, who uh, the um, infamous. Uh, former head of the was it NBC News in the United States. Oh. He looks so much like <laughs> those three guys. He's an amalgam. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, I guess since we just mentioned him, he plays a, a bit role in Creep Show. Oh my god. And I recognized him right away. I was like, "Oh, hey, it's my little buddy Arthur from Creep Show." I think that was his name. I think it was Arthur. I have to look that up. During the uh, the crate, the crate segment, he's uh Hal Holbrook's little diminutive friend see i've seen creep show two a million times but the first one not so much oh i love that flick yeah, those movies were fun i don't know back in the day i i don't know why, why i don't have i don't know like i could be in a class with doctor who i can be into doctor who when they do horror like episodes but yet i just can't do straight up horror in general uh, i can't do the math on that how that works yeah, me and Sean got to get back to our uh, conversion from The Exorcist and uh, The Wicker Man, and we kind of fell off after. Well, The Wicker Man, that was good. I don't know that it was a horror film, but that was good. Just like I love Midsummer, which I don't know that that's a horror film either. <laughs> Those are just good movies. Oh, but do we feel like we've uh, kind of reached the end of our, our discussion for this film here? I think so. It just, overall, I mean, it is a really good movie, to be honest, and... I'm glad to have watched it and to have it in the context of my brain. And it is it is sad that it is so overlooked. And it is very unfortunate that it came out the same. And I know, I don't know if you read into it, but yeah. you know, this is a case of two movies being made around the same time. Uh, Strange Love Kubrick, was that was a studio picture, whereas this one was independently financed. And Kubrick was worried about it because it's so similar. And then they said that they supposedly Kubrick um, got, I guess it would be Warner Brothers, to, um, to because they had the rights to the book, was it Red Alert or whatever, that that Strange Love was based yep. upon. And they said there was so many similarities. And there to a degree, there is a lot of similarities between Failsafe and I suppose the original work, Red Alert. So they sued them for, um, I don't know what you call that. Copyright infringement or... Is that, is that the term, I guess, for this? Um, and they settled out of court. And then just 
to make things even oh it's Columbia Pictures by the way not Warner Brothers and to make it even more square Columbia actually bought the production of Failsafe so they own the rights to distributing both movies Um, Uh and so then Kubrick you know I don't know if he asked or demanded that his get released first and so that's all to the detriment of this movie because if this movie would have come out even two years prior to when it did, it would have been perfect. But then that wouldn't make sense because obviously both these movies were to some degree inspired by the real life events of like the Bay of Pigs and all that. So that's obviously probably what put it into the minds of the creators of both films, etc. But it's just God, it's it's not good to watch them side by side. I mean to place them in history and in time side by side. Yep. Because to me, it's like, um, I know there's many famous pairs of movies that have come out um, throughout the, the decades. But to me, um, for me, there's no question which one is the more enjoyable movie to watch when it's Armageddon versus Deep Impact. One just looks so much cheaper than the other and like a poor copy of. And it's unfortunate that this seems like a poorly done strange love. Um, but there's nothing inherently wrong with this movie. It's just, that's the thing about Kubrick is that so many of his movies, especially post 1960, they just look ahead of their time. Um, and even though strange love is in black and white, it just, yeah, God, it, it's just on another freaking level of production. And I know budget's part of it, but it's not just budget. You know it's not just budget. Um, it's just on a whole different level. And so that's just unfortunate for this movie. Yeah, and Kubrick must have been furious. Because, I mean, just uh, four years earlier, all that bullshit with Spartacus and the Gladiators. It was like, oh, who's we need to rush to the... Who's going to make it to the screen first? And they were trying to shut down that production, too. Except that, that was the reverse, uh... The Gladiators was, I think, MGM, and uh, Spartacus was more of an independent picture. So, kind of funny that just a couple years later, it falls into the same thing. Yeah. Oh, but there was one more scene I forgot I wanted to mention. It was a scene with, um, oh, shit, all these names. Uh, Bogan, I think? Yes. Colonel Bogan? It's... Or actually, it was General Bogan. General Bogan. Yeah, he he's like, he has an impassioned scene where he's screaming at the, the Russian, whatever they're control command is whatever that is he's like oh don't go after this plane that plane's uh yes uh, a decoy go after this this other one that you can't see and they don't listen and after the the up the guy on the other side realizes that he fucked up he like passes out and has to be relieved of his command yes then the other guy comes on who they both happen to serve uh, in world war ii both in london and around the same place and they kind of bond over that and they end it with like oh my goodbye my friend I thought that scene was very impactful, and I really appreciate that they put that in there, just to kind of give this guy more of an emotional moment, because he'd spent so long being kind of a hard figure, just trying to keep command over all these shaky, uh, or at least one shaky moron, that uh, Casico or whatever. Why is that name so difficult? <laughs> I think it's just Casio. And... Casio. Oh, and there was the remake in the year 2000. Do we have to watch that one, too? The, the Fail Safe? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't think I even knew about that. Huh. It was a remake with George Clooney and Richard Dreyfus. 
and Hank Azaria Whoa. and Brian Dennehy and Harvey Keitel. Okay, add it to the list. Yeah, I was going to say, no, 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 fuck that. But And it looks like it was in black and white also. Whoa, whoa, that's that's crazy. Definitely adding that to the list. <laughs> oh, wait, it, it apparently I did know about it because it's on my watch list on IMDb. TV movie. Interesting. Director of live broadcast. What the hell does that mean? Live broadcast? Was it Was it done like, you know how they do those like Grease Live or... Hairspray Live nowadays. Yes. Was it done like that? I have no idea. Well, I'll definitely look into this more, <laughs> and yeah, it'll be coming down the pike for you at some point. Oh, great. Just fall in your lap. Look forward to it. It's <laughs> findable. Shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> well. Um, but, um... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I was, I'm going to rate this sucker. Sure. Um, <laughs> it's, it's weird, because... My brain is weirdly able to separate everything that I just said um, when judging this movie on its own standing. And eh, I get a three and a half, you know? What can I say? I still think it's a really well-done movie overall. Just try to keep Kubrick out of your mind. Um, that's, that's all you can do. I mean, I mostly liked it all. It just seemed hokey. I mentioned earlier already. Just the computer malfunction and then the stupid pilots, like, and no way to stop them. But okay, whatever. Uh, I'll go with it. And uh, yeah, on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it gets 93% with the critics, and then 91 with the audience, which is pretty good. Mm. Um, and it's a short blurb. It just says, Failsafe strikes an impressive chord with its grim, high-minded exploration of the ultimate doomsday scenario. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. And yeah, I would also give it a 3.5. I just love these types of movies where it's a lot of people who are very proficient at their job just going through the minutia of trying to make everything work when it's all just collapsing. <laughs> I think that's just a really fun avenue for drama. That's so weird. And I appreciate the more kind of uh, step back. Like it feels like it's more about just letting the drama play out on screen rather than kind of directorial flourishes and i can appreciate that um i think there's a lot of really tense moments like those phone calls just have me absolutely gripped and i think there's a lot of good acting um but yeah it definitely has some shortcomings like yeah silly character moments that feel like they don't flow naturally and yeah some of that stuff doesn't necessarily work but it's still a, a really really solid movie that i'll definitely return to at some point but it is no strange love i will say yeah, nothing is that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but but thanks again for for coming on for another one of these kind of random. I mean, it's it's kind of a one-off. It kind of ties in, but we'll see one-off. I always appreciate just since we've been doing so many series lately, or serieses lately, just to just do a random one. It's kind of fun again. Absolutely. And yeah, tune in the next time we do uh, whatever else. Peace. Peace.